you've got the presence of God. There's nothing like the presence of God. It's interesting how even kids know when the presence of God's real. I mean, infants in church. The Holy Ghost comes in and, and you go for, it can go from, uh, you know, a typical chatter of things to the Spirit moves in and even the kids get quiet. You ever notice that? Of course you have. There's something that's built on those humans that, that values that. My wife's back there, and she's holding up a dollar bill. I think we need to take offering, right? Is that what you're trying to say? The work of the Lord goes forth, and that's biblical. So we'll pass that plate there and a basket or whatever that thing is there. Well, again, it's good to be in the house of the Lord. Empty my pockets here a little bit, if you all don't mind. Why don't you grab your Bibles? We're going to stand. We're going to take a look at a scripture or two. Amen. I'd like you to turn with me to Proverbs chapter 23. Thank God. Thank God. Proverbs 23 and verse 23. Amen. Let's all read this together. Buy the truth and sell it not, also wisdom and instruction and understanding. Buy the truth and sell it not. Now, while you're still standing, flip over to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16, verse 26. Talking about money tonight, but not really at all in the sense that you might think of. Matthew sixteen twenty six, And you can read this with me if you have it also. And what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Lord Jesus, your word is so precious. And so true. And we ask, Lord, that the life of your word would impact our spirits tonight. It would affect our lives. That would encourage us and direct us and remind us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. We claim that, Lord. Amen. Turn to somebody and say, buy the truth and sell it not. You may be seated. Now I have to confess, holding a microphone is like sheer torture for me because when I'm in when I'm in chapel with the little kids, I'm doing everything but handstands, and I just yell it out there. And but I'll be a good boy. I'll be obedient. I'll listen to my my elders, my youngers, whatever you call them. There we go. There we go. Exactly. I would like, brother Brad, if you can bring that um, thing. I'll just call it a thing up here. It's um, it may need a little bit of help because it's um, it's an oldie goldie. My wife used to have an antique booth, and we would go occasionally to the auction, Christie's auction on the south side. And she and I would look for things that we thought had value. That's fine, right there. Thank you. And that was broken, and that's cool. It's all right. I'll charge you later, Brad. 
by the truth and break it not. And when we first started doing this antique booth thing, you know, we would get something at the auction and we would do all this research about what's the value of this piece here and what's the value of this thing here and we'd learn about it and try to look up values and all this kind of stuff. And candidly drove ourselves a little nuts trying to come up with what the value of something could be. You know, how much could it be worth? And then would start thinking because maybe one went for a lot of money or whatever. But after we did this for a good little while and we had, we'd gone through a bunch of stuff that we bought, I got, um, jaded is too strong of a word, but I got to the place where the value of things, not the value, but, but the value of things to me became what I could make on it. Because it became just an object that we would buy and we would sell And the only really thing that I cared about, and that's an oversimplification, but the goal was to make money in this little uh, economic venture that my wife had. The goal was to make money. And I realized it didn't matter if it was something like this, if it was something like this, or if it was something like this. You'd be surprised what you come across in an auction. If you can buy it cheap enough and you can raise the price a little bit, you've got some profit and you've got some income. And so I went from being so concerned about the real value and the real identity and the real purpose to really, I think that's got value, and I bet I can make money, and maybe I can make a lot, but I'll be okay if I just make a good little bit. You understand what I'm saying? Now, let me tell you just a little bit about this here, and and no, this is not a lesson on antiquing tonight. And, and let me back up just a little bit here. I, I had, I really sought the Lord about what to speak on tonight, what to preach on tonight. And I, I, I really diligently sought the Lord. And for uh, some time, uh, I've been putting thoughts together and writing notes down and doing research. And I, I just, it just, just didn't feel right. Even though I, things were coming together, it just didn't feel right. And a couple of weeks ago, I came across a sermon that I preached, believe it or not, about 25 years ago. And uh, the sermon's an antique. But the interesting thing is, we took Tim Walkstetter out to eat, who has a tremendous memory. But when we were out eating, he said, Brother Barkus, I remember a sermon you preached in the early 80s or something like that. And he said the title of it was Antiques and Heirlooms. I have to confess, I was pretty surprised to hear him pull that title up after 25 plus years. Kind of made me feel good a little bit, but really only was just a reflection of his great memory, truthfully. Well, maybe not. Maybe it really did touch his heart. But after I ran across that note, just kind of out of the blue, and then he said something about that, the Lord kind of pricked my heart. Maybe you need to take a different angle here. So hear what the Lord would have us to hear tonight. So I'm not just talking about antiques. I'm talking about antiques and heirlooms. And we'll get there. Now this particular spinning wheel here, I think probably most of you understand is a spinning wheel. There's a wheel and it spins. Profound. Now this particular spinning wheel has a large wheel. And I know a little bit about spinning wheels because my mom is a weaver 
and uh, she sells looms, and she owns a bunch of looms, and she owns a bunch of spinning wheels, and my dad and mom uh, have repaired antiques, and my dad would, if it was a broken spindle, he would make a new wooden spindle, and so I've learned a few things through the years from them. This particular spinning wheel here happens to have been over at CCS for the Music Fest auction. It was never picked up. I've brought it over here to give to the man that needs to pick it up. You're not in this room. But, um, but more than just bringing it here for this, I wouldn't have brought it candidly if it weren't for this sermon tonight. This particular spinning wheel here is called a walking spinning wheel because unlike most where you sit down, it's got a little foot treadle. This one here, you stand up, and you know, it's, it's a little... Well, I think we're okay, even though that spindle came off. I mean, you, you use your hand, and you're standing or walking by it because you're working with it here. Now, it's missing some of the, the main information or the main, main turned wood pieces where it would actually twist the, wood, the wool. Actually, this one here probably was for linen. Brother Barkus, what has that got to do with anything? A number of years ago, my mom went to an antique store. And she saw a spinning wheel in there. Very unique spinning wheel. One that you rarely see and is even harder to try to buy one. It's a spinning wheel that actually has three small wheels. The wheels are only about this big. And it is, you know how these chairs have four legs. The wheels are built inside that. And there's a small little treadle. And it's really called something to the effect of like a chair spinning wheel because it's kind of that size. And she bought it for way less than the value. Talked to some people and they said, you know what, that belongs in a museum. That's a very rare piece. I started thinking about that spinning wheel. What was it about that spinning wheel that somebody would say, you know, this has been in the family a long time and my great-great-great-grandfather made this and they took it from Boston out to the, you know, the prairies on a Conestoga wagon. But at this point, you know, I don't value it anymore, so I'm just going to take it to the antique store and sell it. What would bring a person to the place where they would take an heirloom that was created by somebody that was related to them, that was made by hand, that would be passed down from generation to generation. And then they would finally say, you know, I just need the cash more. Now, I understand emergencies, and sometimes emergencies happen when people are desperate, and when you have to have food, that's way more important than a family heirloom. I understand that. That's why pawn shops are so popular today, because you can take your things there, and if you need to, get it back later. But what would it take in a person's heart to go through the process of just giving it up for some money. Now, a lot of you already are knowing where I'm going with this thing here. This is a neat piece. If you look closely at it, besides the dust and the labels and stuff, this piece down here is not cut with a saw. This has been hand planed. You can see it up here. This is hand-worked. If you look inside here, there's actually wooden threads like on a screw made out of wood. I can't imagine how much time it took to make this thing here. To somebody, this was precious. 
It was valuable. It was the thing that made their family close. This, this particular spinning wheel here would have made linen things. Um, okay, I've set the stage. How many of you were raised in the church? Let me see your hands. How many of you are brand new to this thing? Few of you. Couple of you. To many of you, you have inherited, so to speak, what we have. But in today's Pentecostal world, people are taking the family heirlooms. They're taking the family treasures. They're taking the family spiritual heirlooms and saying, I'm going to sell it. I want something different. I want something newer. I'm tired of the wood grain look. How about some stainless steel? And they're trading in what they have received for the new version because something has changed the value in their mind. Now, if a person doesn't know what the value of an antique is, you can go to an antique per, uh, expert, and, and like Christie's in the South say they do this, and they'll appraise things. They're licensed appraisers. They'll come and they'll look at your artifact, whatever it is, they'll look it over, they'll look at condition and age and all those things taken in consideration. They'll give you an official appraisal letter and say, I identify this to be thus and so, approximately so old, list the important things, and I assess the value to be whatever price. And that becomes an official value paper. You, just not even, anybody can do that. But somebody comes into your house and says, I say this thing has the value of, grab a number, I don't know, $275. So here I'm owning an heirloom. And somebody comes into my house and said, you could probably sell that for $275. Matter of fact, I'll buy it for $275. And at that point, if you're the owner of an heirloom, you make a decision. What's more important to you? What it means to you personally and your value or the money that you might make out of it? In Samuel, there's a story of a priest. His name was Eli. The story is so interesting because there are three of the next generation, if you will, that play a role in Eli's life. Eli had two sons. They were, well, you tell me, Hophni and Phinehas, Hophni and Phinehas. And Eli was the priest who his job was to teach the next generation. You understand that back then, almost like in in the Renaissance times, the next generation learned the trade of the parents. 
and it was the obligation of that father to teach those sons or whatever, however that worked, maybe take uh, another kid in, an orphan, in or something, and teach that trade to the next generation. It was Eli's job to teach the next generation how to be a priest. And they knew what it was like probably to kill a bull and to offer the sacrifices. They knew what it was like to boil that meat and to reach in with that hook and get out the amount that was okay for a priest to take out. That was a part of the law, the process. They knew what it was like to work with those golden implements. They knew what it was like to work by day and by night, if you will, in that temple. They understood that process. But somehow in the transition from Eli to his sons, that heirloom of the priesthood became devalued. It no longer was an heirloom, it was just an antique. It was old, valuable, but it's okay to sell it because you might be able to get some money out of it. Somewhere in this time frame, and I don't know exactly how the time frame overlaps, Hannah came to the temple. She was barren, you know the story, probably. She's praying, and she's praying with such heartfelt prayers, such travail that the high priest Eli thought she was drunk. The Lord heard her prayers. She received a child, gave birth to Samuel. And Samuel came to live with Eli. Now, Eli was trying to pass off to this, pass off is not the right word, doesn't give us the wrong connotation. He's trying to teach to the next generation the value of the priesthood, the value of the law. And he tries to give it to Hophni and Phinehas, And they understood the workings of the temple, but they didn't get the heart stuff of the temple. If you would see them from a distance, they looked the part of the priest. They understood the role of the priest. They carried out the day-to-day responsibilities of the priest. But in their hearts, they were not priests. But little Samuel, who didn't get it, he was just a little kid. And his mom, some people think, that, and we even heard it referenced recently, that his mom might even have made little coats that may have been a little priest's outfit. You know how we tend to dress up kids in, uh, you know, little clothes, you know, maybe a little, little football suit or a little army suit or a little fireman's suit. Well, he may have had a little priest's suit, if you will. But for him, it wasn't just a game. Because he'd been given to the Lord. He was being trained. Now get, the, get the, the contrast here. And if you can get this part here and apply this, you will have gotten what we need to hear tonight. In that temple, before the Ark of the Covenant was lost, and it was lost just a little bit after this time, We won't get into that. They took it out to battle. We won't get into that. 
But in that temple, there was the Ark of the Covenant that had three things in it. The Ten Commandments, Aaron's rod that budded, and also a pot of manna. There's a beautiful study of what those things are and what they mean, and we'll not get into that tonight either. But there was something in that wooden box, gold-covered wooden box, that chest, if you will, that those young men, Hophni and Phidias, were raised with, the Ten Commandments. Don't kill. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. You know the commandments. And there was a time when Hophni and Phinehas first started changing from being lovers of the heirloom to it being the priesthood being just an antique. When it first started that transition, they started to sell that truth just a little bit. And it came step by step, a little increment step by step. And there was a time, I believe, that when they started, if you know the story very well, it, it's, it's an incredible story. It's a, it's a story of human crudeness. That this, these two brothers got to the place where they would be actually immoral with women on the stair steps, if you will, or the door threshold of the temple. It's like, my God, how, how sinful can you get? But there was a time when they were walking that path away from truth to doing their own thing. Even though they looked like it was the real thing, as they were walking that path, there was a time, I believe, that the commandments would have whispered to their heart out of that box, not very far away from where they were. Don't commit adultery. And the source of the law, not many feet away from where they would walk to, to break that law, at one point would whisper to them. And in a still, small voice say, that's a commandment. Don't do that. But in that same temple, a voice spoke to Samuel. And Samuel listened. He didn't understand it at first, but he kept on listening. Hophni and Phinehas understood exactly what that voice was saying. There was no question in their mind that that was the voice of God that was speaking through the commandments to remind them of how they should behave. And little Samuel, I'll use him as a type of a new Christian, not really getting it all but saying, if there's more, I want it. God, I'm, I'm listening. He would hear the voice, and he would go to Eli and say, Eli, what do you want? And Eli sent him back to bed. And you know the story, and, he, and it happened again. And finally, Eli got that God himself was trying to speak to the little boy And I can't help but think that Eli, even though he was blind to his degree of his son's behavior, he was not totally unaware of what was going on. 
in his spirit. He had to know something's wrong here. And what those boys, his boys weren't doing, God made provision for somebody else to take their place. God said in so many words, you may not appreciate what my law says, but I'll raise up somebody else who will appreciate it. You may not listen to my voice, but I will always have a group of people that hear my voice. You may reject the hard stuff and keep the exterior shell, but I'm going to find somebody whose heart is after me. I don't know what it takes for a person to have to give up great, great, great grandpa's spinning wheel. I can't imagine what it would be like to feel the pressure to have to sell or to hate the family so much that you wanted to get rid of everything that reminded you of your family. Brother Titus, you've shown me an old cup that you have. How much can I pay you for that? Oh, come on, it's just a dumb old cup. That's, what, that's the definition of an heirloom. Now, it's got your name, your family name on it or something? Tell us just a little bit about that old cup. That's deep stuff. Some people may not get that, but when you've got a family heirloom, that's deep stuff. But Brother Titus, if I know you, and I think I do, you'd give that up way before you'd ever give up the Holy Ghost. Way before you'd ever give up this oneness truth. That's real value. We shouldn't be doing so many artifact stuff here, but I have a kind of a weird knife here. Everybody understands a knife. It's a buck knife. Got a blade. One, what in the world's that? That's an honest answer. 
It's kind of a wicked-looking tool, isn't it? not going to cut, but I'm going to tell you, it's going to do some serious poking. Let's just pretend there's a culture that doesn't understand what a knife is. Can you pretend that with me? Sure. They might see something. I like this podium. <laughs> Somebody might see this thing and think, hmm, what's this? Oh, well. Somebody might look at your Holy Ghost and say, huh, what is that? I don't understand it. Can't have much value. Or they might say, you know, that was probably valuable to somebody. But I don't see the value in it. You see where I'm going with this? Very good. Somebody might even say, what an idiot. They made a knife blade that isn't even sharp enough to cut anything. And make a statement based on their understanding. This has no value. I can't cut anything with it. But to a person who understands the value, the purpose, I should say, it's a different story. This happens to be a sailor's knife. That's a marlin spike that they use to mend rope. And when rope, did anybody know that? I figured somebody would know that in here. And uh, y'all let me down, man. Well, just take my word for it. You ever sat in a college class or on the job? Hey, y'all know about the Holy Ghost? You know what that's for? And nobody raises their hand. Nobody gets it. You ever been there? <laughs> yeah. It's like, well, oh, that, that's probably valuable for somebody. Or, that's pretty stupid. You can't even cut with it. Never let anybody assess the value of the Holy Ghost for you. It's not their job. They may not understand it. They may not have experienced it. But the moment you listen to somebody else who says the Holy Ghost doesn't have value is the moment, that if you listen to them and your heart listen, that's when you start to back a little bit away. Now, I know who I'm talking to. I'm talk- you wouldn't be down here probably if you didn't have a love for the Lord. I understand that. But how is it that we can go from I would never ever get rid of it to man, I could sure use 275. It happens to society all the time. It happens in churches all the time. 
And let me tell you something in the Holy Ghost. There's not a person in this room who is immune to that spirit. There's not a one of us who at some point isn't or hasn't been tempted to think this through. Is it really worth it? Is it really real? Now really, who, who put the Bible together? Who had the right to call this part the Bible and left something out that wasn't... You, if you're honest, you've thought those thoughts. You've walked that path. Being a Christian isn't an absence of doubt. It's dealing with doubt according to God's Word and God's Spirit, God's people. There's safety in a multitude of counselors. Somebody may not understand the value of the Holy Ghost. Don't let them say, what's that? The person who understands what it's for could save their life. So I'm going to read a couple of verses to you. Again. For what is a man profited if he gain the whole world and sell his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? How is it that ministers who have preached from our pulpit upstairs in the last five or ten years, people who we have amened, people who have blessed us, are now pastoring churches that have values different from what you and I have? I could give you names of people that you all know that have given up on some of the things that we say these are things that we would never let go of. Yet they have. I know this is a different kind of a sermon, and I know it's being delivered in a different kind of a way, but I don't apologize for it because I feel that I'm the Lord's will here. You are, we're in our Sunday school class. We're studying this whole business of biblical worldview. And worldviews don't typically change like dynamically overnight to something totally different. But a worldview can be changed just incrementally, a little shift at a time. If you're not staring at the sun all day long, which would be pretty difficult to do, that sun's going to go from east to west and us not really even realize that what used to be behind me is now in front of me. Yet, all of that motion with just subtle changes. Okay, Brother Barkus, let's just assume for a second that the Lord has led you to preach this. Well, why would that be? Well, maybe somebody's dealing with this. Well, what advice would you give if somebody's dealing with this type? Well, what do you do? You know, I mean, wh- 
bow your head with me just a second here. Lord, I ask for your eternal will to be done, to strengthen, to give wisdom, to empower us, Lord, to stand fast in the truth that we have. You know, Lord, what's happening in our hearts. And I ask, Lord God, that you'll empower us, Lord, to stand fast in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Usually when you talk to people who are making changes, they've done a lot of justifying. And it's for the better cause. It's for improving. Be careful who you hang out with. Be careful who you listen to on the Internet. Be careful who you let truly feed your soul. We need strong Holy Ghost filters. Brother Barker, are you saying we should only listen to people that believe exactly like us? No, I don't mean that. First of all, they'd be pretty hard to find. Secondly, it'd probably be pretty boring. Maybe not believing, but, you know, think just like us. But we have to have a filter. Doesn't the Lord, doesn't the Word tell us to try the Spirit's? Why would we be told that? Because there are times when we have to sense, is that right? Or is there something else going on? How often does the Bible talk about false prophets? The New Testament refers to it quite a bit. Prophets that may be only 10% false are still false prophets. If it's just one sermon a year that's false and the rest are all dead right on, there's a problem. And we've got to be strong, understand the word, to be able to filter that. Galatians even goes so far as to say that we need to be careful that Somebody shows up can do incredible miracles. Even if they can do things that have the extreme wow factor, don't listen to them because it's not the miracle that proves the truth. I think I need to read that for some of you. Galatians 1. you all aren't taking this as a rebuke. This is a challenge in the Holy Ghost here. But though we, Galatians 1.8, but though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be what? That's pretty strong language. Can you imagine going to church and an angel showing up? with the wow factor of an angel? Verse 9. The Bible doesn't repeat itself very often. It does occasionally. 
for very clear effect. Verse 9, As we said before, so say I now again. If any man preach any, <laughs> any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. There's a lot of things you can learn from those verses. First of all, not every gospel is gospel. Not every preacher is true. Not every miracle is from God. And if there's some wrong people, there's some wrong doctrine. If there's some wrong doctrine, there's some wrong churches. And if there's some wrong churches, there's some churches that are not going to be in heaven. I'm not trying to send people to hell. I'm just trying to help us to understand not just everybody's making it to heaven. And we have to filter this stuff out. How much do you value your Holy Ghost experience? Let's stand together. Could I have the musicians come, please? Jesus, I have all the confidence that you know what you're doing tonight. And I pray, Lord God, that there will be a strengthening of your truth. That there be a hunger in our hearts to maintain a close walk. To listen to that spirit as you would speak to us, God. Help us, Lord, not to justify our behavior, but to listen to what your voice would say. Help us to always be walking towards you, towards your voice, towards your truth, towards your spirit, and not away from it in any way, God. Help us, Jesus. Help us, Jesus.